One of today's snazzy sponsors is Quest Software, your go-to for everything Microsoft. Move, manage, and secure Active Directory, Office 365, and much more. Visit quest.com slash datanotspod to find out more. Quest.com slash datanotspod. If you're a modern sort of infrastructure engineer, you're likely interested in APIs. Structured data, everybody, that's a big win. RESTful APIs are the most common you're likely to run into in managing infrastructure. And on today's show, I interview Chris all about RESTful API fundamentals. Your buzzword bingo list includes automation, abstraction, pagination, idempotent, JSON, YAML, swagger, and versioning. Drink! Unless you're driving. Instead, try uh, brake. No, no, that, that, that won't work either. Anyway... I am Ethan Banks, and with me is Chris Wall. We joined my networking transporter with his virtualization rocket to make a spaceship exploring the ever-changing infrastructure universe together as the Datanauts. Since 2015, Datanauts has been a part of the Packet Pushers Network of Podcasts for information technology professionals, and you can follow us at datanauts underscore show. And as I said, it is just me, Ethan Banks, and Chris Wall on the show today. Chris has been doing some traveling and uh, doing a presentation on APIs, uh, amongst the many things he's been doing in his travels. And we thought that would make a heck of a good show, just to kind of go through this material that Chris has been sharing with people and uh, and answer some common questions. And so kind of think of this as, as a school, everybody. Uh, Banks is going to go to school, and Mr. Wall will be my API, restful API as sensei. He will be my teacher, my instructor, to, uh, to, to take me to API school. So, Chris, what what do I do? Do I welcome you to the show? I mean, this is your show, so that would be weird, right? Yeah, man. But, uh, you know, realistically, it's our audience's show. Ooh, mind games. And basically, the story is this. You hear a lot of folks that talk about, hey, we got to automate. We need a pipeline where you kind of throw any sort of upgrade or package or new software, whatever it is, into the beginning, and it gets qualified and tested and all that kind of jazz and out at the other end magically appears a service or a piece of data or an artifact or whatever it is that you need to do. And it's like, that's great. And I don't think anyone really argues with the principle of that theory of pipeline-driven automation. But where do you start? <laughs> that's, that's not a simple question. And I think that for a lot of folks, especially in the data center world, where we're sort of used to being given tools from the vendor ecosystem that do things for us, such as connect one system to the next or allow us to automate based on triggers that are created from another system, this can be kind of perplexing. Like, what do we do? And I think it all boils down to, well, how are we automating things kind of in the rest of the world? How do we get systems to talk to other systems? And that's the crux of this workshop that I've been doing uh, for my day job is let's start actually dealing with the fundamentals of the web and systematic discussions, you know, programmatic discussions with APIs and things like that. What does the architecture look like? How do we actually start using version control in these APIs to leverage tools that can start automating these things and kind of starting from the ground up uh, and keeping it very hands-on and very interactive. So, so that's what I've been spending a lot of my time doing. 
Yeah, I get what you're saying about fundamentals and ground up. Um, I'm finding that with a lot of the podcasts that uh, that I've been recording on the networking side of things too, a lot of times we're jumping in more or less into the middle of the conversation or the deep end of the pool right away and people that are newer are, are struggling to keep up with how we got to this conversation that we're having because they don't have that background and technology is built on a lot of foundational bricks that maybe some people weren't around when those bricks were getting laid. So it's a, it's a challenge for them. So all right, we're going to jump into one of those bricks today, Chris, which is... Uh, uh, RESTful API. So let's start at the very beginning, man. Um, like I said, uh, l- l- let's play the role of student and teacher. Uh, I'll be the student. W- what is REST? Yeah, so REST is a bit of an overloaded term. It's the letters R-E-S-T, and it stands for Representational State Transfer. Sounds so you know magical and stuff, but really it's just a design architecture that largely those that are looking to create APIs or the application programmatic interfaces or programming interfaces can use to make it so that it really doesn't matter how the client wants to talk to the server. Uh, by that, I mean what language you want to use or, or really what your intent is. You have a well-defined and established set of rules that you can work within to take whatever it is that you're looking for and, and send that query over to another entity, a server, and say, hey, I'm looking for information on, well, let's use a network. Uh, you know, construct. I want to understand how you've set up something like spanning tree, or tell me all the information on your virtual lands, you know, your VLANs, or maybe in the virtualized world, give me information on this virtual machine. I want to know how much CPU and RAM and disk and, and things like that are being consumed. And REST is kind of the architecture that we use in order to make that query happen and also understand what the response is going to be so that we can grab all that valuable data that we're looking for. It's a way to ask the question and then get the data back in a predictable way? Kind of, yeah. It's it's really just how do we make it so that this conversation is well-defined from an architecture perspective without having to dictate exactly, you know, is it a JSON payload or an XML payload or right. something like that? You leave that up to the API and the, and the person that's creating the APIs to determine, but you understand how that conversation is going to happen. All right. So we talked about REST, representational state transfer. What then is an API? An API is just some sort of exposed location. You know, a URI is actually, you get to it like www.whatever, uh, where a server is listening for some sort of request. Uh, digging down a bit deeper, it's basically saying, hello, I'm, I'm, I'm awaiting some sort of request. You're going to want to get some information from me, or perhaps I'm going to want to send you some information, or you're going to want to create something new. That's kind of the endpoint where APIs interface can be talked to by an application. You can actually codify how this conversation occurs. And the end state is that you're actually, under the covers, looking to talk to a resource. Uh, the API is actually kind of this communication layer that on the uh, that is on the front end, and then the back end of it is all the resources, such as I talked about earlier, Ethan. You know, all the VLAN information, all the virtual machine information. Those are resources that the API can get you to, so that you can either just get information on it, or perhaps create a new one, or delete one, or something like that. So if we've got uh, REST we've talked about and now API that we've talked about, let's combine RESTful API. Why would we care especially about speaking to an API in a RESTful way? Yeah, it's more around the fact that, let's just take take a backup, back up this moment. Think about the internet, right? It's kind of a giant API. You know, you're not actually talking to a person. You're having your client, which is a browser, 
talk to some other endpoint on the internet. And a few shows ago, we talked to, uh, I think it was Zoe, about this is sort of a trusted environment, right? The default state of it was a trusted environment where I can go and say, I need some information, go get it for me. Don't worry about handling the data or modifying it or codifying it. I'll deal with that, but just give me a structured set of data in the form of these resources to handle. And your browser does that. It's actually hitting this endpoint and saying, hello, you know, packetpushers.net or whatever it is. I'm looking for information. I like to get that from you. And so the nice part there is it's really just about the data at that kind of communications layer. And then the client handles all the interpretation of it and the presentation layer and all that jazz to, to make the website look pretty and whatnot. But you don't have to worry about all those nuances. You're just give me data, I will give it back to you. And then the client decides what to do with it. I think that's one of the most important things there is if you think about the web as a giant RESTful API, because basically what it is, we all know status code 404 means I couldn't find it. So you at least know a little bit about APIs there. Uh, then it becomes maybe a little bit less scary. You know, just I have a request, I expect a response, that response is going to contain data. So there's a bit of an abstraction layer there that um, that's kind of masking us from where the data is coming from and, you know, and so on. The API is doing the translation of the question and the answer back in a, in a standardized way. So it's not a, it's actually not, it's the opposite of a scary thing. It's actually your friend uh, is, is kind of how I'm thinking about it, the way you describe it. One thing I would, I would dig a bit deeper there. You said that the API is kind of doing the translation and that's really more the client or the tool that you use does the abstraction and the translation. The API is very kind of dumb in its construction. It's just, here's a resource. If you want to get access to it, these are the query parameters or the you know path parameters that I need. Here's how I'm going to give you back the data. It's very contractual. It's literally, give me these things. I will return to you these other things. Sure. The translation's I, all at the client layer. If I'm looking at the API uh, descriptor, tell, you know, at a particular method, something that I, it, it'll tell me exactly what to ask and what form I'm going to get the data back in. Um, right. It's not, it's been crafted to perform a very specific task. You're, you're making the point. It not, um, it's not clever. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, to use another analogy, you know, if you're, if you're going to a concert or something, there's an expectation you're going to have your badge, and then you show it to them, and they do the security screening, and then you, you know, you get past the turnstile, and you're in. All of the steps necessary to get in there are kind of the expectation of, you know, the process to get in, and then kind of a similar one to get out. Now, what you do while you're there, and what you do afterwards, is kind of up to you, but there's certain rules to engage to get in and get out, you know, or to send the query and get the response. And so that's all dictated by the API. And it's very, it's very rigid. If you don't do it right, you'll get a malformed request error or something like that. So there's not a whole lot of latitude as to what you're doing at the API layer. Now, interacting with RESTful APIs particularly, my experience in dealing with infrastructure has been that's kind of the norm. Most of the APIs out there are RESTful in nature. And so if you're comfortable interacting with a RESTful API, know how to form those queries, know how to use programming libraries that can interact with the REST API. That's a, a skill worth having. Is that fair to say? I think that, well, it, you know, it comes, up, it comes up as like this. Like, hey, it's an API. It's always abstracted. Why should I ever know about it? Um, and there's, a, there's a, definitely some nuance to that argument. You know, there, there are abstraction layers. I'm not, you know, like, I doubt you're sitting down and saying, all right, I want to do a TCP handshake. Let me actually write out each step in that by hand. But, but you know how that works, right? You understand the, the acknowledgments and the, the syntax and all that kind of jazz. And I think that's similar to, you, you understand how a virtual machine is running and that it needs different processes 
you know, running his worlds in order to handle the mouse and the keyboard and the different threads for the CPU. Like, but we're not going in and instructing the scheduler to say, go do those things. Uh, so I think that's where I think we just have to understand how these fundamental pieces work because ideally we are abstracting it away. I'll be honest with you. I'm not just writing curl commands to talk right. to some API endpoint. That would be, that would be an exercise in misery. Uh, a lot of times what I'm going to do is I'm either going to learn the API and then write an abstraction for it in the form of an SDK or some other language, or I'm going to consume someone else's abstraction. But then comes the question, what happens when there's something there that I, that I, that I need that I don't have? You know, uh, what do I do if I want a particular API endpoint to be consumed, maybe in a different way? Um, am I just sort of like stuck? You know, do I, do I just have to wait at the mercy of someone else to create it? Or can I go ahead and look at the API and say, oh, cool, this is something I'd like to do, perhaps not even with the, the original vendor's API, maybe someone else's API, and you want to stick these things together. A good example there, um, when I was working with Rubrik as well as VMware, they have their module, I have my module, what can I do when I put these together? And ideally, you know, the two companies aren't going to just mash these things together. I have to be that sort of translation layer. And understanding the API calls made that much simpler. Hmm. Uh, another use case here for APIs is most of us are in this automation mindset. We don't want to be configuring things by hand through a GUI and clicking lots of checkboxes and filling in forms to configure things. We'd like to automate those processes. APIs come into play there. And this is especially true with the public cloud world. Everything can be consumed via APIs. So uh, again, I'm just throwing fuel on the fire here, yet more reasons of why understanding what an API is, a RESTful API particularly, and how to consume them, it matters if you're an infrastructure engineer. I think it does. I think it does. And it's one of those things where, again, you're not going to handcraft these things day to day, but you should understand how the architecture works. And I know, actually, my first kind of foray into this was trying to automate things around the VMware NSX environment. After Nicira was acquired, uh, I got a hold of the API PDFs, and they were all in XML, but it had pretty good examples of what I wanted to do. And I was looking to automatically craft these pods of architecture to, uh, to deploy the correct routers and uh, the, I'm sorry, the correct routers and switches and all that kind of things that are necessary to create a virtualized network, test something for it, and then throw it away. Uh, or ideally, to be able to stamp out very consistent, very identical looking pods of networking for different environments for pre-production and staging and that kind of jazz. The other use case that I tackled as well that I think probably might be more prevalent to our audience is monitoring. Um, originally, I was looking to build out a lot of dashboards in Grafana uh, and my backend was InfluxDB and I wanted to pipe in information on my home lab, like my Synology, uh, my different VMware hosts, uh, the different pieces of networking gear that I had. I wanted to create kind of this unified view of all things that were going on, and my budget was you know, zero. So, so I used some open source dashboarding tool, you know, in this case, Grafana, and I just actually wrote very simple API calls to all those different things, except for Synology, because they didn't have one, which made me very sad panda. <laughs> uh, and it allowed me to pump into this, you know, this nice view that is very tailored to what I wanted, and then I could publish that on the internet through, you know, a, basically a push so that I would always be able to see it no matter where I was. And I'm like, cool, this is the power of being able to pull all this data and aggregate it together. And I could do certain transforms on the data in case I wanted it to be gigabytes or terabytes or something like that. And that's when really the light bulb went off. Like, oh man, these APIs are pretty dope because they let me just kind of do whatever that I want to meet my use case. 
Exactly. You you can wrestle that data into whatever unique thing that your business might need or that you, the way you work might need or that your team needs because of how your workflow goes or integrate that data into other systems that already exist within your world. You can have your system call an API and pull in data um, or speak to an API and, and put data into another system and create this, as you just described, like a unified view of what your IT world is. But sometimes you don't even need to do anything that complicated because people listen to this, go, whoa, 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 big guys, you know, relax. I, that's a little too much to take in. Okay, so here's a really simple example, Chris, of something that I've been dealing with. I've been working on teaching myself segment routing, which is an up-and-coming technology in the networking world that is seeing increasing adoption. I've got an iOS XR virtual lab that's uh, I've built. And as I'm staring at just six routers to do some lab work that I want to do and looking at having to build them by hand, I'm going, wait a minute, these things all have an API. I'm pretty sure iOS XR has got an API and and it does. How can I programmatically do the configuration on this lab so that I don't have to stand here and you know build a, a bunch of text configuration and paste it in like a caveman? Can't I can't I yes. do this programmatically with an API? And uh, and that would make my life so much easier. It would be so much faster to stand up the lab in that way. Yeah, you're you're hitting the thing that I think a lot of folks that listen to the show will hit is you you want to be able to learn, and that requires standing up very similar, if not exactly the same environment repetitiously so that you can burn it down to the ground with your mistakes and your learning. And I think that's where we all kind of have this, this desire, like, how do I automate this? And previously, it was around having kind of golden templates, so if you will, of a, of a lab environment that you could stand up. But now, there's actually a lot of ways that you can do that with both infrastructure as code and, and or configuration management. And what do you think those things are all using under the covers? API calls for the most part. So you can kind of dig into that as a use case for a home lab uh, type environment as well. One of our sponsors today is Quest Software, your go-to for everything Microsoft. In a nutshell, Quest takes the complex things about your Microsoft environment and makes them easier to deal with. For instance, let's say you're dealing with a move to cloud or maybe a merger, or maybe you're doing both at once, what happens? With too much to do, you start making mistakes. You give out more permissions than you should because you have too much to deal with, and sticking that user and that group and that OU wasn't the right thing to do, but it was the convenient thing, and it lets you back to writing that script to help you migrate accounts. Oh, it's just ugly. This is where Quest Software can help. Quest fits in when you're migrating to a new SharePoint or migrating to a new Office 365 environment. You're consolidating Active Directory and Exchange. You're securing Active Directory from insider threats and more. And Quest has been doing this for a long time. They help manage 184 million Active Directory accounts today. Plus, they've migrated over 95 million accounts and 74 million mailboxes. And when you need someone to have your back, Quest's support organization is award-winning. Quest is sponsoring the Experts Conference in Charleston, North Carolina, USA, on August 27th and 28th, 2019. Never heard of the Experts Conference? The Experts Conference is focused on stuff that works in the field. The Experts Conference provides deep Active Directory and Office 365 training that you can apply as soon as your butt hits the chair back in your office. Meet and learn from folks whose books you've read or whose products you've used, such as Randy Franklin Smith, Gil Kirkpatrick, Sean Metcalf, Chris McNulty, and Joel Olson. No, that's stupid. These conferences are always huge, and I'll never get the chance to talk to these folks, you might be saying. 
And Quest politely suggests that you're wrong about that because the experts conference is small compared to the massive shows like Microsoft Ignite. You have the opportunities to ask any questions you may have one-on-one. And if you need CPEs, you can earn up to seven CPEs per day at the experts conference and Quest Software can provide you the transcript that you need to submit. If you'd like to attend the Experts Conference, you can get a 50% discount for a limited time only. Visit theexpertsconference.com for more information. And to learn more about Quest Software, your go-to for everything Microsoft, visit quest.com slash datanotspod. One more time, that's quest.com slash datanotspod. And we thank them for being a Datanauts sponsor. Well, Chris, we've set up what an API is, a bit about REST uh, specifically, as that defines our conversation with an API endpoint. Um, maybe we can dive in deeper to that part of the conversation now. Tell me, g- give me like a like an anatomy of an API conversation. Uh, what, what does that look like uh, as I'm asking questions and getting a response back? Yeah, it's fairly simple. Uh, there, you can make it complex, but let's focus on a traditional kind of request and response cycle. Uh, where you are requesting something, the the API endpoint is kind of there, enjoying a you know mojito in the in the in the sun of a beach somewhere, and you're like, hey, I want something, uh, and so that simply is a request. You form a request, and we can go into what that consists of. Uh, so you package that all up. Um, you're going to encrypt that using HTTPS. So the SSL certificate is going to handle the encryption for you. You're going to send that to an endpoint or what's called a URI, a Universal Resource Identifier, a little bit different from a URL. Uh, and then it's going to receive that. And based on what you're asking for, you may get a synchronous reply where it's, okay, cool, I got your request, I'm going to handle it immediately. Or an asynchronous reply where it may tell you, awesome, I'm working on that, but it's not going to be done for a little while Either I'll let you know when it's done, or you can check in using this special identifier or a request identifier to see when it's done. And that's basically it. The The actual kind of, is it working or not, will be handled in the status code. And again, we all know 404 is, I couldn't find the object. And in the web world, that's, I can't find the page you're looking for. That URI doesn't go anywhere. Um, but in the API world, you can get that as well as like a 200. Like, everything's okay. I always think of the fonts like, hey, it's good. And things like that. And that's pretty much it. Then you have your data and you can do things with it. Let's dig into that request format a bit. As I've studied RESTful APIs, it it is my understanding that it's intended to feel and look like HTTP. So if you're comfortable with how HTTP requests are formed and the sort of responses, as you've already alluded to, 200s and 404s and uh, 500 series responses that you can get back and, and, of course, everything in between. Uh, a lot of the conversation between a REST request and response may look familiar to you. Can you talk us through that? Yeah. And let's also preface that with, if you use a tool like Curl, like you could go really, really simple with Curl or Postman or PowerShell or whatever, you probably don't have to dive deep into these things. They'll just ask you a few questions and you'll get it back and forth, but it's still good to know what's going on. So there's really, there's three or four things you need to make a request, depending on what kind of request you're making. So let's cover the three absolutely mandatory things first. Uh, one is the URI. Uh, that's the endpoint. That's basically what is the, you already mentioned HTTP. We're using, uh, you know, the kind of the web transport uh, to get information back and forth. So what, who am I talking to? In this case, it'll be something like www.whatever usually slash API, slash whatever it is. Like if it's a VMware thing, maybe we're talking to, you know, slash VMware, whatever. But it looks just like a URL. 
And this is the identifier because it actually gets us to the resource itself. And this represents the, the objects that you're trying to talk to, such as a virtual machine or a virtual disk or a VLAN or a network or whatever it is. So that's the first thing you need. That tells it how to get where it needs to go. The second is the method. And I like to call that the verb or the action. It's basically, once I've reached this endpoint, what do you want me to do? What is the action you're looking for me to take? The most simplest example would be a get. I'm looking for you to get information from this resource located at this endpoint. Done. And it's just going to package all the resource information up and give it to you. Uh, it could be something like a put, where I'm actually putting values into the object, or a post, where I'm creating a brand new object. Or, Ethan, delete. What do you think that one does? Uh, I bet it deletes something. You're a winner. You know, so the, the, the methods are very simplified. You know, there's only about seven or eight that really matter. Uh, and then the final thing is the headers. And the headers, uh, as far as a kind of a mandatory thing, the header is going to contain information more often than not, than not uh, that contains the session information or the authorization, uh, which would be like your, your, your user credentials, your token. And then optionally, if you're doing something a bit more advanced, you'll have a body that's included in your request. Because let's say that, I don't know, I've been picking on the VLAN thing a lot because you know it's a very simple kind of construct. Let's say you're talking to an endpoint your goal is to create a new VLAN. Well, the way that you tell the endpoint, hey, here's what I want it to look like, here's the VLAN number, maybe the default gateway, the subnet, all that jazz would be in the body. And so the body would contain all the, all the information that you want to use to either update or create a new resource. And that's pay, uh, placed in the request as well. Which all feels very HTTP-like, uh, because I guess it is, essentially. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> there's nothing like I said. The web is a giant API right. conversation <laughs> built in a RESTful architecture. So it's it's basically web, but more more focused. Got it. When I get data back, Chris, in that response, what is the likely form I'm going to get that in? I does that that varies by API, I assume. Uh, not super much. You know, the the, the anatomy is fairly straightforward. Um, but again, I've only worked with maybe a dozen. APIs and there's bajillions. So take it with a grain of salt. You might find weird stuff. Uh, but for the most part, the first thing you're going to get is a status code and a status message. Those are usually kind of lumped together in the header. Uh, and the status code is, it's, it's interesting. There, there's two levels of status you want to focus on. We'll keep it simple though and just say the status code is primarily what you want to look at. And that'll be like 200, successful, 201, okay, uh, 202, created, things like that. And it's just basically what happened with the request, right? And it may be like, yeah, I received the request. And then kind of going a little bit deeper, we'll go a little bit sideways here for a moment. There may be some information contained in the response saying, your request was okay. It was formatted properly, but I couldn't do what you asked me to do uh, for some reason. Or, you know, uh, it's going to take a little while or something else. So if you're, if you're working with APIs, first just focus on the status code. And then as you get from more familiar with the API you're working with, you might dig a little deeper and look into uh, the actual status message or something saying, yeah, it was okay, but what you asked for isn't, isn't happening right now or something weird like that. Most of the time, though, those are going to be exceptions. I mean, the, the more, more yes. typically, you're going to have a successful connection and you're going to get back some structured data that you're going to be able to do something with, yeah? Yeah, I, I bring that up more around... <laughs> people never really say those sorts of things and they never kind of give you the heads up that, hey, the status code isn't the only thing we right. should look at. So I'm trying to help out future future me's of the world that are 
looking to do this. But yeah, by and large, 99% of the time, you can look at the status code. If it says success or something like that, you're fine. And here's another kind of cheat sheet. Most good API documentation will tell you what status code to look for. So it'll tell you, look for a 202. That means you were successful in your call. Uh, so we'll move on, though, but but status codes. Like, well, I, I, I do have one quick question about that before we oh, yeah. move on, which is you mentioned earlier that if I'm consuming an API, I'm probably using maybe a library or an SDK. Would that deal with all of that looking at the status code kind of stuff for me? Yes. If it was written, if it was written in a good manner, you know, a well-crafted SDK should absolutely handle errors. And, and status issues. You shouldn't have to worry about that. Really, uh, if you're working with SDK, it's more around what do you do when there's an error, but it should surface it to you very clearly. Okay. All right. Yeah. So so I've got, I got my response back. That's got some sort of data in it that I can uh, now do something with. Um, it, do I... How do I how do I catch that data? You know, I've had this data that's been thrown at me. Do I have to do something magical? Because I, I know just from what little API work that I've done that what that how the data is formatted as it comes back to me depends. It could be XML. It could be uh, JSON. Seems to be the, the the way the data comes back more typically, and that's pretty easy. Like if I'm working with Python, the data comes back as a blob, and the Python Python will just uh, split it up into a dictionary for me, as the case may be. Well, you're actually hitting upon an important part because there is there is a body where all the object data is contained in the response. And there's almost always a body unless it's just, hey, I want to create something or toggle something. And it's like, yeah, cool. So you can look in the body and that contains the data. But but kind of backing up for a moment, you're asking a good question. You know, how do I know what the payload is going to look like? Is it JSON or XML or, you know, Ethan Banks special notation, you know, whatever. And that's contained in the header. Uh, so the header will tell you things like what is the what is the content formatted as? Uh, is there any you know cross origin resource issues to deal with? You know that that's kind of all the information around the payload and even some information around what you're talking to will be contained in the header. So maybe like content type text, you know, or something like that. Uh, but then the body is returned to whatever made the call, such as if you make a curl request and you're in terminal or command prompt there will just be kind of a vomit of all the information just spewed onto your screen. Uh, if you're working with an SDK or something like that, it might be returned as, uh, it might just take the body data and return it to you. Long story short, you kind of have to know what the format of that data is. Uh, so if it's JSON or something like that, you have the correct libraries on your end to format that data. However, all almost every payload I've ever seen come back from an API request is object-oriented using key-value pairs. Uh, so you're not having to scrape and say, go down three lines and, and 17 characters across or use a regular expression to like grab some cryptic crap out of the, out of the body. <laughs> right. It's really just you get that back. You use whatever you need to do to format it into something that the, you know, the, the PowerShell or the Python or whatever it is that you're using understands. And then you just find what you're looking for uh, based on your use case. It's it's going to be delimited. Yeah, I mean XML will be surrounded by tags and a hierarchical structure that is Ugh, uh, easy yeah. to par ugly, right? But easy to parse. You know, JSON is uh, very predictably formatted with uh, braces and, and colon delimiters for data fields. It's not usually you can look at it and kind of intuitively know what it is. And there's plenty of libraries that know how to parse that data. It's not not rocket science, but you do have to know, as you said, what format that data is coming at you, so that you do parse it correctly. Right. 
right? And so, well, let's take that, uh, let's just keep picking on that poor VLAN <laughs> example. Um, so let's say you did, you, you asked for a new VLAN um, and you said, this is what I want it to look like. Uh, in the body then would probably be a, a JSON or XML or, or some kind of, you know, um, object-oriented key value pair payload that will contain things like name. And then next to name will be a value of whatever you called the VLAN, you know, Ethan's amazing VLAN, uh, VLAN ID, that's, you know, 230, whatever. And so based on your, your code, it could just be, give me all the information. You know, you're writing a script to do this. Give me the information, just spit it out. I just want it. Or it could be, give me just the name and the VLAN ID and send that as a message in Slack. You know, it really doesn't matter what you're looking to do with it. Uh, but you can very easily call those keys and get the values and, and do something with that, either notify or, or it's another step in the automation workflow. Yeah. Yeah. And this is where, you know, we've had conversations about how networking is kind of living in the past on a lot of this. A lot of the times the APIs that are offered are not consistent or don't expose the entirety of the sorts of um, data objects you might wish to query and get information back about, um, or they just vary widely from vendor to vendor or even from version to version of code, the APIs changed. And so what you're querying is changed now, which actually is, is an interesting question. How do I deal with um, <laughs> versions of an API and understanding what I'm getting back from that API? Yeah, you're, you're, you're touching on a, a hotbed of discussion, I guess, <laughs> or at least it was when I, I, you know, I first kind of started working with APIs about 2013 or so. So Oh man, saying that loud makes me feel kind of old. But you know, the 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 versioning thing. There's a couple different ways you can do it. I'll, I'll say the most common that I see is actually putting the version of the API in the path of the URI. Uh, so let's take uh, one. I one. I uh, GitHub. GitHub.com has an API where you can literally hit it, and it would be something like you know v1, v2, or one and two. Stripe is another good one. They have an API that uh, they they embed kind of the version of it in the path. And so you might think, what's the point of that? Well, it's basically if if something were to be made, some change were to be made to the API, specifically an endpoint or a set of endpoints that are similar to one another, let's say the VLAN endpoints get updated and they want you to have a brand new option available and it's now required that you fill in this brand new option. Well, that would break code because previous versions of, the, of a script that you wrote or piece of code doesn't really know about this required parameter and so when you went to go make the request, it would, it would die uh, and give you an error. And so a lot of times what they'll do is maybe that first version of the endpoint will be API slash V1 slash VLAN. And when they go to make that non-backwards compatible change, they'll make a API slash V2 slash VLAN and give you a notification saying, hey, there's, there's an upgrade happening to the API. At your leisure, go ahead and change over to the V2 endpoint and test that out. But the V1 endpoint will still continue to operate until V3 comes out. So it's always like the most current and the next version operate at the same time. But it is something you got to keep up with and track. Yeah. And, and if you don't, then you end up with effectively breaking changes. The change yes. that the API endpoint has done is going to break your code if you don't keep up with the versioning as it, uh, as it advances. Yeah, there's a couple of ways. Here's, here's a couple of things I recommend doing. One, definitely sign up for the API newsletter, whatever that your vendor has. I definitely do that with Slack and GitHub and a few others. Well, they'll just email me, hey, we got some changes coming. But more importantly, in the header of a response, most good 
APIs will go ahead and put a little special flag in there saying, we've, re- we've acknowledged your request and we're sending you the object data you're looking for. But by the way, this is going to be deprecated at some point in the future. And you can flag that uh, as an example in PowerCLI, which is a PowerShell module put up by VMware. A lot of times a little warning will pop up. And you can capture that saying, this will be deprecated in a future version. Stop using it as soon as you can and switch over to this other one. Um, and that way you kind of know what's going on. I want to take you down a, a different road now, Chris, which is that of uh, authorization. So uh, here's, here's a little bit of code I wrote recently. There's a bunch of tutorials on how to write a Python script that can interact with a Slack channel. To facilitate that, there is a, I was going to say complex, it is a little bit complex. To, to get authorized, <laughs> to get the token generated that you need, you go through a, a complex process. Uh, there's some other APIs I've worked with that have converted from more or less a simple user password scheme to OAuth2. And to get the token generated for that, it's it's a different set of libraries you need to interact with and you know authorization scheme uh, to enable you to in an authorized way, ask that API questions and get answers back. Uh, it, it can be a little frustrating. And, and that part of the API <laughs> interaction can be as difficult as, can be the most difficult part, actually. You got any tips for dealing with authorization? I love that you call that as the most difficult part because quick story, I definitely have spent a lot of times dealing with APIs more on the infrastructure side back when I was consulting. And there was so many instances where the developers just assumed that the authorization and, and authenticating was known and they didn't document it. There was no like anything um, that it, it is commonly the most challenging part. And so um, I've got some good resources. I'll give you a link to my blog where I put together how to do what's called basic authentication. And then the other one you've already keyed in on is kind of bearer or token-based authentication, which would be an OAuth 2 as an example. Basic authentication is kind of weird uh, because what you're actually doing is you're you're encoding using Base64 a combination of the username and the password with a colon in the middle. And what that's going to do is transform the username and password into a string of encoded characters that are UTF-8 compatible or compliant. And you're going to put that in the header of your request. The, the key is going to be the word authorization. And then the value, again, this gets kind of goofy. Uh, The value is going to be the word basic with a space and then that base64 encoded username and password. And a lot of times that is a process you're only really going to use for short-lived requests or maybe you have a monitoring system that just pings once an hour for a piece of information, something like that. Very short-lived requests. And it's not my favorite because even though you are encrypting this using SSL, you know, the certificate encrypts the communication, there's still somewhere that you have the username and password in co- you know, codified as base64 or not, which is very reversible. So it means that that base64 encoded string needs to be very, very secure. You don't want to show that to anybody. So that's more of like a, an ad hoc, hey, I want to request to do something. And that's, it's common. It- it's a common hack that people will encode that information in their script somewhere. And if you've published it out on GitHub now, you've just exposed your credentials to the world. <laughs> yeah, and there are ways around it. So if you're like, oh man, I'm doing that today, you can use a, an actual encrypted or secured variable that contains the encoded base64 username and password. I actually do that quite a bit where you have another service encrypt it. And that way you can kind of place it out there on GitHub or something like that, if absolutely necessary. But 
just try never to share that stuff. Just keep it <laughs> embedded on the back end yeah. as an encrypted variable and let whatever the system is that's that needs it supply it in a just-in-time manner and do the decoding kind of within memory so that it's not plain text anywhere. Uh, the, the more the use case you're talking about, Ethan, is a token-based authentication. Honestly, yes. that's the best. Uh, that's that's typically one of you what you want to do. And in that case, it's basically the same. It, it may vary a little bit in the API, uh, but you'll have a header value of authorization. I'm sorry, a, a key in your header called authorization. And then the value becomes the word bearer, B-E-A-R-E-R, with a space, and then whatever token they gave you. And typically, these things are like 64 characters long, so it's enormous. And the nice thing there is that you know the token can be invalidated whenever it basically represents a user, so you can apply role-based access control and policies and things like that to it. And it's pretty easy to kill off in case somehow it gets out of the wild. Uh, so you can you can tie a lot of security to the token, and you can make it very specific to an application that may need it. I know when dealing with the Slack API, they uh, gave you a process to generate a token, and one of the things you could add to that was a whitelist. If this token appears from any IP address other than whatever's in the whitelist, invalidate it. So yeah, yeah. You, you could add those extra controls around there in case that token got compromised in some way. Yeah, you definitely want to go for tokens. The other big benefit is it's not tied to your user account. You know, it's a token that's meant for one application to talk to another one by way of the API. So a lot of folks, you know, they get started, they tie it to like, hey, it's the Chris account that's running in this. And all of a sudden, you know, 90 days passes, I change my password and all my automation pukes. So uh, try, try to get in the habit of building out tokens for your environment or using some sort of service account if you have to go basic authentication. Yeah. All right, moving on to a new topic, Chris, a pagination. So uh, as I was reading through this and how you described it here, and I'm, I'm going to let you describe it for the audience in a second, but it reminded me of SNMP get next or bulk requests where you could iterate over a particular leaf that's in the SNMP tree and get the next and the next and the next and the next object. Uh, sort of like that, but, but, but somewhat different. Give us an idea about API pagination. Uh, you're you're basically right there. I mean, uh, I think a lot of us, as we go to deal with APIs, are going to feel like this is very similar to SNMP walks, right? You have a bunch of resources by SNMP. You know, you know, but with SNMP, it's more like ten dot one dot one hundred dot. Right. You know, they have that weird <laughs> right. number yeah. string to find the object, and it's very similar uh, to APIs, just that the mechanics are a little bit different. And so, yeah, pagination is. I may have like let's uh, let's say I'm looking at virtual machines, and it's like cool. I have 24,000 virtual machines. And you say, get them. You call the endpoint to say, get me all these resources. Because you don't know that there's 24,000. This is unknown to you. And so the API has a couple, couple options, right? It could just spew 24,000 objects back at you and probably kill itself uh, or, or have some kind of you know, bad news type of day. Or it can paginate. Uh, which basically chops up the objects into pages, if you will, or kind of like, here's the first hundred objects. If you would like more, here's a, a link. It actually, we'll typically give you the URI with the correct parameters embedded into it. Uh, make a request to this link if you want the next 100. And the, the, the levers that it has to pull are things called limits, and then usually after and before. And so a limit is how many objects are, am I going to allow you to send to me and you could say limit one, and then your, your page is going to be one object long or 10 if you want 10 objects. And then after and before, it could be, you know, I, I, I want 10 objects per request, and I could set the after to 30, and that means I'm going to get objects 30 through 39, something like that. So you can say, I, I want you to start after this many objects or before this many objects. 
And so they're just ways to control how many objects get returned and also kind of where to start. But you were describing that from the, the client, the requester, and can the API endpoint also limit how many pages or how much data in a chunk it's willing to send you to kind of protect itself? Yeah, if they're smart, they do that. Because <laughs> otherwise, you can set limit to like nine, 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 nine. You know, it, it wouldn't matter, and then it just struggles to try to send it back. So, oftentimes, what you'll do is you'll set a limit, and if it's if it's outside the bounds of what the API endpoint is allowed or, or structured to return, it'll just kind of ignore that and set it to whatever the ceiling is, or, or potentially just give you the default uh, amount of objects in a page. Which makes sense. Uh, way back in the day, that was something if you were in charge of a SNMP network management station, you had to be careful just how much you were asking a network device to give back to you. Because you could actually clobber the CPU if you gave uh, a command that was essentially a huge SNMP walk and it had to walk through a massive tree of data. You could the CPU would spike up to a hundred percent for a while until the request was fulfilled, and then you'd breathe a sigh of relief, going, "Oh, what just happened? That was close. We almost lost routing adjacencies." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so having that yeah. throttle makes a lot of sense. And uh, and and it's interesting you bring that up because something I I don't know I don't know if I wanted to go too deep in it, but there's actually this term called safe and unsafe. Those those two kind of terms to describe API requests and get. The, action, the method get is considered a safe request because it doesn't modify data. And so it's commonly where I tell people to start because you can't, I'll say, you, you can't destroy an API by getting information. Well, you know, if, you, if they had no pagination in place, maybe you potentially could, right? If they just tried to give you back a billion objects. So pa pagination allows things like get requests, uh, you know, GET method requests to be safe because not only do they not modify any data, you're just getting it but you're not going to clobber the endpoint either. Another concept that comes up with really any sort of automation, Chris, is uh, item potency. Um, and as you've written here in our notes, uh, APIs can support item potency within them. So talk us through that. Yeah, it's, it's such a goofy word, item potency, item potent. Uh, try saying that seven times fast if you can. <laughs> I'll give you a crisp high five. Uh, really, the term is, is more around the fact that it's unchanging. You know, it's, it's a fact that, well, let's walk through an example. Let's say that you have an object and you get information on that object. Like, hey, I want to see what's going on with this virtual machine or VLAN or, or whatever it is. Every time you make the request, assuming that you're the, the only user in this world of the API requests, you're going to get the same response. The act of getting information on the object doesn't change no matter how many times you make that request. And similarly, let's say you're looking to uh, put some information into an object. You want to update the name and the number of CPUs or something like that for a virtual machine. It doesn't matter if I keep putting the same values over and over again, making that same exact request over and over again to the object. I'm going to get the exact same response. You know, I'm not making a new object. I'm just updating that object with information. And so item, item potency within an API is kind of that, that concept of I want to make sure that if I need to perform an, a request more than once, you know, n plus one, or, or basically anything beyond one, um, that I'm going to get the same exact response. And this becomes very critical with folks like Stripe, as an example, where they're dealing with pay information, or actually a, a kind of a pay card API, where I want to make sure I don't double charge you because something's happening, kind of you know, monkey in the middle. And so I can literally put an item potency key to say do this. And if it's already seen the key, you'll say, well, actually, I've already done that. I'm not going to do it twice. I'm only going to, you know, I, I will confirm it's good, but I'm not going to charge more than one time. 
And so this request is idempotent. It will it will not uh, it will not see any other result other than the one intended, no matter how many times I call it. So idempotency there it, that that's interesting. It's it's a it's applied to the API. I've heard it applied to infrastructure state before, where we want the state to end up to be this particular thing. And don't make changes you don't need to make if the state already reflects is already in the desired place. Uh, you know, item potency comes into, but but it's a, it's a different concept here, slightly different concept when we're applying it in an API way. Yeah, I mean, imagine there's probably a number of things you can think of where you want to make sure that each request is the same. Like if I make the same request multiple times, I don't want the answer to change. You know, just like if you ask your friends, hey, let's go out for a beer or something like that. You don't want to be day one. They're like, yeah, let's do it. Day two, they're like, we're going to stab you. Like that would be weird. You kind of want a similar response (laughs) over and over. The same with API calls. You want to make sure that it doesn't matter if I'm making the call once, twice, you know, N plus one number of times, whatever. Uh, I always want to make sure I get a consistent and reliable response from it. Uh, Because if not, it's kind of this, this trust, contractual trust is kind of broken. And it becomes kind of a, a questionable API. You're not sure if you can trust it because you're starting to get different responses, to, you know, no matter how many times you query the same exact request. I mean, it would be weird on day two if they said they want to stab you, unless you grew up in a really tough neighborhood, in which case, <laughs> hey, that's just that's the way it is. <laughs> All right, one last thing I want to ask you about this, uh, this part of the conversation, Chris, is documentation. Yeah. Now, I have run into Swagger. Uh, documentation. And I kind of got the vibe that that was uh, almost auto-generated if you feed it the right data, but I, but I'm not really sure. Can you explain API documentation to me, how Swagger fits into that and so on? Yeah. And API documentation is the most important part of an API uh, because any system that you don't understand and can't deal with is worthless. You know, If you don't know how to use it, it's not simple. Uh, it's complete garbage. So documentation is, is certainly important. Uh, what you're dealing with with Swagger uh, has actually morphed. Uh, I won't go into the, the, the nitty gritty. We'll just say the open API specification available on GitHub is the new, you know, formerly known as Swagger uh, as of 2.0. And I think that came out maybe five years ago or so. Uh, but the sw- Swagger name is pretty dope, right? People like the name and whatnot. So it still, it still persists. And, and realistically, it's, it's a really cool way to kind of visualize what's going on with the API. You can literally create a file that's machine readable, typically JSON objects, you know, more if it's more like, hey, I'm a person, I want to deal with it, it might be YAML, uh, but allows you to s- specify a Swagger specification file or open API specification 2.0 file. And that tells you everything that's going on with the API, right? It's going to tell you, here's the endpoint, here's the methods available, here's the status codes available, here's some descriptions, here's all the parameters, the queries, the paths, the body, blah, 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 all of it is in there. And it's nice because there's a lot of REST API explorers are kind of built on that so that you get this real-time living documentation. Uh, In a lot of cases, they'll also let you make requests to the API by way of like a try it now button where you can fill in values for the parameters uh, or, or actually add a body payload uh, in case you're trying to create something and you can press a button and it handles all the you know, authentication, all that kind of jazz is, is done for you. And so that's, uh, that's something that I would want to look for. My advice, if you're dealing with vendors and it's like, yeah, where's your documentation? And it's like, there is none. That means run. Uh, if the answer is here's a 30, you know, 300 page tome of PDF files, run a little slower. Maybe there's some, maybe there's some life there. Uh, but hopefully they're using OP, a, open API spec 
or, or something that's a bit more real time so that you can really dig into what's going on with the API. And you can't assume what the vendor is going to offer you either. Um, we've run into everything you just described from nothing to, well, certain special customers can get that information if they really want it to it's kind of an aging out body of PDF documents to they keep right up to it with um, or keep right up with it with uh, with open API spec and and or swagger, uh, depending on the terminology being used. But you can't assume, oh, if they built an API, surely the documentation is there for me to consume and it will be lovely. Yeah. Nah, not so much. No, no, you definitely you definitely want to ask. And uh, a lot of times you'll be surprised. Maybe a product you have today in the data center, you didn't even know it has an API. You can kind of play with it. And again, my first use is like, wow. Kind of, kind of want to know like different, really deep, kind of ESX top level stuff in my vSphere ESXi servers, and then I found a couple of ways to request that via way of Power CLI, which is calling the API, and I'm like, that's kind of cool. I didn't know I can grab that stuff, and I started pumping it into a dashboard. It doesn't take rocket science to do it. It's it's fairly trivial, and it's for yourself. But the learning experience, you know, was not trivial, and it took me a couple of weeks to really get it right. And I felt so happy when I had little lines and graphs and stuff pulling off of uh, these these like eight API calls that I had written. So it's 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 a it's a great thing, great feeling to get that stuff operational. Related comment, Chris, is a lot of times if the API is there, you may need to turn it on within your equipment. It may not be actually listening by default. Uh, that's a feature that you gotta flip a switch on with some kind of a command or a checkbox somewhere. I don't know if you've run into that much in your world. The networking, it certainly is common that the networking device is probably not listening on that API by default. Dude, that's super weird, but I, I maybe that's a security thing. Is that I don't know. It just seems to be <laughs> we're in, we're back in the dark ages, man. We're we're still getting you. Oh, we should turn it on by default. Yeah, it should just be there. I shouldn't have to jump through a hoop to ask it a question. Jeez. But yeah, that's a thing. Depends on, I know more modern stuff, like, you know, obviously at Rubrik, but there's other ones too, where the product itself is using the API. That's probably going to be your best bet because then there's no off switch because then like the user experience and the UI would stop working if the API wasn't there. So best case scenario, the product's using it. Plus then also the added benefit is if the product's using the API, it means the feature parity is 100% because it couldn't offer you a feature if there was no API to back it up. So that's, that's going to be your best case scenario. If they're if they're charging you to use the API or it's off or something like that, like honestly, I, I feel like I'll step on my soapbox a little bit. We can do better than that. You know, there's there's no reason in 2019 that there isn't an API available or something on the roadmap or something you can get to to programmatically control infrastructure. I think that's a little bit of a cop out if they're like trying to nickel and dime you for the ability to use the product you purchased without pressing buttons. Chris, you have been exciting the API person in me to, to really get rolling on some of this and do more work than I have been. I've fooled around. I've certainly had my API requests and gotten my JSON blobs back and parsed them and then worked with the information and so on. But there's so much more that I can do and really should be doing. It's uh, it's it's that time thing, man. You got to make that upfront investment to of time to really get comfortable with something so that you can quickly make tools that are useful. And and sometimes I'm just lazy and I default back to what's easiest <laughs> and I can get it done now. 
But so anyway, thanks for the education so far. And I, I got to ask you, I know you guys at uh, Rubric have been doing these Rubric build workshops that have used a lot of these concepts. Can you talk us through what that's all about? Yeah, man, it's 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 fairly straightforward. We just we have this itch to automate things and work with SDKs and code and APIs and tools and you know all the nerdy stuff that I think everybody here is like, yeah, it's it's cool stuff. And we wanted to create an area where we could educate on everything from how to take an API and translate it into a language such as Golang or PowerShell or Python, but also how do they then plug that into different tools like Ansible and Vrealize and Splunk and Terraform and CloudFormation and things like that, as well as use cases that kind of stick all that stuff together. And the idea wasn't to do anything kind of rubric special, you know, like that's not really the goal, but we do feel that a lot of folks are as I talked about in the very introduction of the show, trying to get to this point where everything's kind of pipeline driven and automated and is focused on the outcomes that you're looking to, to, to build out, not just, just get into the API or just get into version call or something like that. So we built out this website called build.rubric.com. It's the rubric build is the name of the program. And literally, if you go there, you're going to find about 20 to 30 different open source projects, completely open source, all available to you that, you can start on the left if you're more advanced. And you're like, hey, how do I take an API and translate it into a software development kit? Or I want to use this as an idea starter for my own environment all the way through, I don't know what the heck is going on. I want some use cases here to look at. And you can dig into the code. You can see the documentation. Um, one that one is an example. We have Roxy. She's our, our mascot. She looks like a piece of French toast with like some jelly hair. Um, and, and we've got her up and running as serverless functions uh, you know, on Lambda being called by Amazon Lex. And if you're just like, hey, how does that all work? It doesn't really matter if it's around backups and recovery and that kind of jazz. It's just like, it's cool tech. So that's the first thing that we have is that cool website. And then there's actually a repository on GitHub called Roxy at Rubric. So if you go to github.com slash Roxy at Rubric, we've actually taken a lot of different things that we've been using kind of internally to enable our own teams and, and talk to different people in the partner community. We've open sourced all of it. Uh, under under Roxy, and it's like, hello world, I want to learn GitHub, you know, introduction to REST APIs, getting started with PowerShell and advanced PowerShell and things like that. And what we're trying to do is build out this very open and available library of educational offerings, presentations, lab work, all the way through all this code, all this documentation, and build a community is the goal. So that it doesn't matter if you're starting off or you're more advanced, you can kind of join in the conversation and tell us what's dope, and we can work together. It and again, I don't have to be a Rubric customer for this to be valuable to me. No, absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, we've got enough, like, heck, with a GoLang SDK, one of the one of the uh, I think a gentleman who maintains Go, like a very large contributor for the Go language itself, popped on over and just said, "Hey, what you're doing in 14 lines of code or 30 or whatever, I can do in three. Here's how it works." We've had other people come in and just try to localize documentation. Some people actually took one of our chat bots and modify it so it works with another product that's not Rubrik. And I'm like, heck yeah, peace sign. Totally love it because that's the idea is like you can see how all these things work. In fact, one person was looking at how we do version control and CICD pipelines. And so the whole conversation was around how we do unit testing and linting and security controls around an open source project to deliver that into an environment. And that's what it was all about. 
So I'm hoping these are the things people grok, not, you know, hey, rubric, shove it down my throat. I, that's not the, po- the purpose of this. Give me some other tool recommendations um, you know, if I just want to get started here. So you know, we talked about you know, curl as a you know, super fundamental. You could actually just make a curl request at the command line and, and get data back and kind of get some clues as to what's going on there. Kind of a good way to visualize it, you know, if you don't mind the, the lack of formatting and so on. Uh, you mentioned Postman, which I've heard about before. What, talk about those things and, and any other recommendations you might have for people that want to get started with REST APIs? You know, Postman's a good one. It's it's actually what I used to start when I was very, very new to the concept of an API. And what I like about it is a couple things. Number one, it's all online. I don't need anything you know localized. It even has a Chrome extension if I want to go that route and kind of work with it a bit more local. Uh, but what I like about it is that I really don't need to know anything about an API. I can go to the documentation I can then feed in things like the URI, the method, the body, and Postman really helps me format all that. But then I can save those calls too, and I can package that up into a Postman configuration file and share that out with somebody. So that the, the use case that I found quite helpful is, especially, you know, this show is all about busting silos, right? So you can take, if you're more ops-focused, a Postman config is like, this is kind of what I want to do. And maybe talk to your developers or application owners and say, can we, can we do this? And now you're kind of talking their language. Like, oh, cool. This proves it out. I can see it. You know, for you, it's very simple. For them, it's very explanatory. Or even vice versa. They may be able to, if you're on the dev world and you want to say, I want to do this sort of workflow. Here's what I'm looking to do. But I don't understand infrastructure very well. Or I don't understand the software that's running on-prem very well. Postman could be another area where it's this is what I want to do. Can I do this, you know, in the software, in the kind of you know, on-prem infrastructure world? And you can work as an ops person and say, well, you could build a VLAN that way, but whew, I would not do that. Let's do it this other way. So it kind of distills it down to just like the workflow and gets the code out of the way. Very cool. And uh, for those of you listening along, we're going to have links to all of these things in the show notes, which you'll be able to find up at packetpushers.net. Uh, Thank you, Chris, for being the instructor today. And uh, and thanks to all of you for listening along. That is going to do it for today's edition of the Data Knots podcast. I'm Ethan, Ethan Banks, uh, at EC Banks on Twitter. You can click in there and find all the other things you want to know about me. If you're that, why would you do that? I don't know. But you can if you want to. It's all there. Chris is at Chris Wall, W-A-H-L, Chris Wall. And his blog is uh, wallnetwork.com. And uh, hey, we're going to keep doing what we do here at Data Knots, busting down silos and talking to people who are doing bleeding edge things and getting the whole IT community around the microphone, chatting about how to build systems better together. That's our mission. That's our job. That's what we do. And uh, next episode coming at you in a couple weeks. Until then, may your server lights blink, your data be structured, and your cables be cleanly managed.